0: If we believe this is true, and we believe every, every good word we've already heard this morning, we can look at that and we can say, God is in control, and he wins. This is what winning looks like. And yes, it's hard, and it hurts, but this is what winning looks like. Continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, here's some quick things to know, or maybe you forgot it was written by Solomon in the last decade of his reign as king in Jerusalem. And he's looking back on his life and he's making observations and his observations are heavy. They're unapologetically raw and real. This was the wisest man who ever lived and he confesses he's tried things his way, he's tried things God's way. And none of it seems to make any sense. And what, he, what he's forced to come to grips with over and over and over again in the book is that apart from God ruling and governing all things. You can't make sense of this life. Everything under the sun. He uses that phrase 29 times in the book. Everything under the sun is vanity. Uses that word 38 times in the book. Everything in life is like striving after wind. He says over and over again. Nothing lasts. Life is but a breath that's fleeting and nothing seems to ultimately matter. Everything's meaningless. And if you remember from the last sermon we saw last week at the end of chapter two, Solomon comes to a point where he he sees all this and he hated life. He says he hated life. But it was at that point where he was brought low that God revealed his truth. And that's often the case in, in all of our lives. But it was it was at that point God revealed his truth, and what he comes to find out is you know, life is unfair for the sinner and for the righteous. Death doesn't discriminate between sinners and saints, but the righteous, the one who knows and loves God, has the advantage and can actually enjoy the simple blessings that God gives in this life. And so, and so there's contentment there. We can have contentment there. To quote an, an old theologian, Augustine of Hippo from late fourth century, he, he said, "God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest." And that restlessness is what Solomon recounts in his life under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the rest that he finds is ultimately in the sovereignty and providence of God. That's what's on display here in chapter 3 that we're looking at this morning. Solomon starts highlighting the sovereignty and the providence of God, and that's why the title of the sermon this morning, as you can see in your bulletin, is An Enthroned God. I know I'll often hit y'all with quotes from C.S. Lewis and, and, uh, and Charles Spurgeon, and it's just because they're so good at, at putting words to ideas that we really need to be able to capture, right? And it's my job to read all the books so that you know, I, I can, you don't miss anything. I can share it with you. So I, before we read the passage this morning, I want to whet your appetite with a quote from Charles Spurgeon about God being on his throne. He says, Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his almshouse to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. We don't mind a God who makes us and loves us and gives us stuff. But we tend to mind a God who rules over us. But, you know, I think... Joseph might have mentioned this already. There was Michael. It was Michael. A God whose will can be overpowered by our own, or a God who doesn't know better than we do, isn't God at all, is he? We we don't need a weak, ornamental God. We We don't need a God who who's just an accessory to the wardrobe of our lives. We need a God who is on his throne, who is outside of space and time, and who doesn't need our permission to rule over his creation the way that he sees fit. With that in mind, let's read together God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now, hear the words of the one true and living God. Y'all, when I read this, I know you're, a tune's gonna come to mind. You've heard this song before. I just ask you to resist the temptation to sing. <laughs> All right? For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him that which is already has been that which is to be already has been and god seeks what has been driven away moreover i saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness i said in my heart god will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? That's the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, God, I pray that you would help us to hear your word by the power of your spirit. And God, that you would move me out of the way that you would strengthen your church, encourage us this morning, embolden us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do we really believe that God is actively involved in the universe? You know, I don't know about you, but before I was a believer, I was telling Ness and, and Foster this this past week at our, uh, at our men's prayer meeting, I was open to the idea of God before I was a believer, just not the Christian God or any other religions, God for that matter, because they were just all so exclusive, right? It was, you know, we're, we're right over here and they're wrong over there, and I hated it. I hated organized religion for that matter, right? but, Never mind the fact that I had my own ideas about God, and I was willing to say all of them were wrong. The irony, I know. But I didn't like organized religion. I was open to the idea that a God existed, but it really didn't matter to me or, or make a difference in my life because the God of my own imagining, if he existed at all, was just a, a maker, you know? Like you just wound the clock and set it down and just let it tick. Stood back to see what would happen. And there's a tendency to read this passage like time's just ticking and nothing can stop it. And all things, good or bad, just happen. And continue to happen and time just marches on. We live and we die. And in the meantime, we're just slaves to the ticking of this clock. And even though we know one day we won't hear the ticking anymore, it's just going to keep on ticking anyway. Well, that's true on the one hand, and that's some of the frustration that Solomon's trying to invite us into. He wants us to feel that. But don't miss what Solomon is showing us in the rest of the passage. It's not that time is the master whose judgment cannot be escaped. It is God. We're not at the mercy of time. We're at the mercy of the God who made it. God is not bound by time like we are. He's outside of it and above it and he governs it. And it's a good thing he does, right? Because we recognize we can't. We can't stop time. We can't get more of it. We can't even manage the little bit we have, right? That's why we have to have calendars and day planners and apps and lists and all this stuff. God rules over every minute of your life. And it shouldn't be stifling. Stifling should be reassuring. So before we continue, just take a moment right now. Take a deep breath and relax. He's not asleep at the wheel. The main idea of the sermon this morning is knowing God is on his throne doesn't rob you of freedom. It gives you peace. No matter what happens in life, we can know that everything unfolds according to the providence of God. And not only that, but we can know that for those who love God, he really does work all things together for good, like Joseph said just a bit ago from Romans 8. Here's three points for you this morning as we look through this chapter talking about the providence and sovereignty of God. God is in control over his creation. God has authority over his creation. And God chooses to be present with his creation. And we should rejoice over all three. Let's look right here in the beginning of the chapter where we get into the the poem portion or the, the song. And point number one, God is in control over his creation. Verse one literally reads, to everything there is an appointed time. And I know the ESV says there is a season. That's not wrong. It's just that the Hebrew word there is a little bit stronger, and it gives us this idea of it being fixed. It's been appointed according to the divine plan of God. These are not just things that happen. These are not just times and things that happen to you. These times have been appointed by God. I'm not going to go through all of them, but as I I thought about these verses the past couple weeks, what struck me most is that there's an appointed time in God's providence to mourn. That's hard. We don't like that time. We really try to avoid it at all costs. Last night, I was on the phone with my, my best friend of 30 years, and uh, at some point in the conversation, you know, I knew, I knew his grandmother was ill, and he says, I got to let you go. My mom just texted me. My, my, my grandma died, and I said, man, I'm I'm so sorry, and he said, you know, I'm not, um, you know, she was suffering, and, and she's not suffering anymore. I said, yeah, but you are you know you are and you know what I realized as I thought about this God wouldn't put that there that time for mourning if you didn't need it isn't there a healing that takes place when you allow yourself to mourn when you, when you embrace the grief first season not forever the first season instead of ignoring it or trying to fight against it. That time has been appointed by God for you. There's a time even for mourning. As hard as that is for us. And you know, just a little farther down, verse 7, he says there's a time to tear and to sow. And you know, where we get this, you know if you remember in the Israelites' history, there were times where they recognized that they had grieved God, that they'd gone astray, or just some calamity fell upon them and they would tear their clothes, and they would mourn in sackcloth and ashes. But what was followed by that was a a season of restoration where it was time to sew those garments back up again, to stand up and to shoot straight again. That was healing. So these seasons, they're not just things that happen, some good and some bad. They're all good. Because they're appointed by God. Nothing happens by chance. Things happen because there is a fixed and appointed time for them to happen according to God's plan. Time's not a master. God is the master. He created time. It's under his control. Everything is, and that's what we see in each of these 14 pairs of contrasts we see in this song or poem at the beginning of this chapter. Solomon's using a, uh, a Hebrew literary device here where he uses opposites to, to get the idea of all across. You know, and this happens all the time in the Old Testament. You're familiar with you know, the, the heavens and the earth. What we're supposed to read there, right, if you're a Hebrew reading that, what you're supposed to read there is, in, and everything in between. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, everything from A to Z, everything in between. in between. So it's not just that God's plan includes each of these 14 pairs of things, it's an ultra emphasis that God has appointed all of it and is in control of all of it. Nothing happens apart from God's plan. And isn't it comforting that as Christians we can know that we are not just being overtaken by time? The time of our births and the time of our deaths are appointed by the God who made us. We're not just in some game of survivor, all hoping to make it out alive. God is in control. God's control over creation reflects God's goodness. It shows us his glory in creation, and it also can show us, too, that there are, there are consequences to particular actions. It shows us that, too. But what is especially important. What it especially shows us is that human history has a direction, that all of human history is directed toward an ultimate good that cannot be achieved in this life. That ultimate good isn't found under the sun. What is found under the sun is evidence that there are appointed times and seasons for everything that happens and nothing happens by chance. We know that. It happens for a reason. And don't miss this, y'all. Listen, An enthroned God who is good has good reasons for everything that takes place under the sun. And part of Him being on His throne means Him not having to give you the reasons. He doesn't have to consult us. You know, it reminds me, about Job. Remember when Job was complaining to God and asking God to explain himself? And God says, that's, yeah, that's good, Job. We'll get to that. But hey, listen, while, while, we're, while we're talking here, check out this awesomeness over here. Isn't that cool? Did you make that? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever commanded the sun to rise? Did it ever listen? Tell me if you know where light lives and darkness hides. Can you call out the stars by name into formation? And Job's like, uh, no, sir. I, I, I don't rule the universe, you do. And he's like, ah. Oh. How about you leave that to me then? How'd that be? We gotta be okay with God being on his throne. Even if we don't understand it. Or if we don't agree with it. That's faith. And that's the appropriate response to God being in control. Faith. Not resentment. Knowing God is in control doesn't rob you of freedom. It gives you peace gives you peace. Next point, God has authority over his creation. Not only has he appointed every time and season and made everything beautiful in his time, like he says there in verse 11, whatever he does endures forever and nothing can be added to it or taken away. Verse 14, he made it that way. And we get the reason why he made it that way at the end of that same verse. He says, God has done it so that people will fear before him. Why does God want us to fear him? What's he mean? He wants us to fear him like a big, mean bully who wants to beat us up for our lunch money? No. Fearing the Lord means having an an awe filled admiration and respect for him, It's it's an awe that inspires obedience it's submission to his authority. That's fear of the Lord. It's recognizing you owe him your existence, his bigness, right? Recognizing his bigness, that you owe him your very existence. You're here because he put you here, and because that's the case, it'd be wise for you to submit to his counsel on how to live your life, You know, Solomon, same author in Proverbs, says, Fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's foolish not to accept guidance and instruction from the one who made you, isn't it? I mean, you want to know about meaning? You want to know what what, what the purpose of life is? Why wouldn't you ask the one who made you? I bet he's got some ideas, don't you? He could, sh- he could shed some light on that subject for us. Fear of the Lord is submitting to God's authority. It's recognizing not, o- not only does he orchestrate all of creation, he has plans for it, and he also has expectations of his creatures. And, it, you know, let me just ask isn't he entitled to that? I mean, isn't he do that? Can't he be entitled to having authority over his creation and to expect things from us as his creatures? If he didn't, right? He'd be he'd be no he'd be no different than some just sort of uh, quaint decal or accessory in our lives with just no no influence whatsoever. You can't you can't have a relationship with someone who doesn't expect anything from you. Not an intimate one, anyway. And that's what God offers us. An intimate relationship with Him that includes us making sacrifices. And we wouldn't dare compare the sacrifices He expects us to make with the one that He made to be in a relationship with us in the first place. So God being on His throne means He has authority over us and that shouldn't make us cringe. Our response should be, willing obedience it's right and proper that he should have authority over his creatures and we would do well to seek his counsel and advice about how to live our lives he knows better than we do right that's good knowing God is on his throne doesn't rob us of freedom it should give us peace rolling into point number three as we're talking about relationship with God, we've said God is in control over his creation, he has authority over his creation, and point number three, he chooses to be present with his creation. Do you realize that? That's that's what he wanted from the beginning. He was in the beginning, and there was nothing. And then he made everything, and then he made us. Our kind, our species. The the man and the woman were in the garden, and they were the apple of God's eye. The, the, The crown achievement that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rejoiced and praised each other over. And He walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. It was His delight to be present with his creation, particularly us. He has made us in his own image. We're different than the rest of his creation. We're different than the animals. We'll get to that in just a minute as we're looking back on that last bit of that par- paragraph from the passage. But before we go there, look back at verse 11 real quick, where he says, God has put eternity into man's heart. God put That longing in us for something out of this world that's indescribable and inconceivable and that rivals any joy found on this earth, and that longing is for Him. You were created with that desire. A deep desire for God with us. You were made for it. solomon learns god put eternity into man's heart he he gave us a longing for answers to eternal questions and and one of the questions he actually raises beginning in verse 18 he says how are we any different than the beasts of the earth we all die we all go to the same place but we're different for precisely that reason god has put eternity into our hearts we're meant to wonder and to create and to see what we've created destroyed and to feel pain and to recognize life under the sun is bittersweet. So that we would, we would have this, this aching that we're dealing with where it's like we have this, this, this song that our heart knows the tune to but we don't know the words. That we have cravings for things that we don't have the ingredients to make down here. Unlike animals, we are knowledgeable enough to know our condition on the earth. And yes, we'll die just like the animals. But unlike them, we live our lives pondering our end. Yeah, we all die. It's just those of us standing on two legs, we live thinking about death. What's up with that? Animals don't do that. You can pretend they do, they just don't. And, and listen, you know, let me just say, I'm a dog lover, okay? I love dogs, I've grown up with dogs my whole life, we have one now. I hope that our family will always have a dog in our home. But a dog doesn't have my thought life. He doesn't worry if he's doing okay as a father. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't worry that God may take him early and his children won't remember him. There's no doubt in my mind our dog Crash, and those of you in our community group have all met Crash, there's no doubt in my mind that our dog loves my wife. But he doesn't warn her to be careful of her surroundings when she goes out alone because he doesn't understand the world the way that I do. He doesn't anticipate death the way that I do, and he doesn't think about what happens after. God has not put eternity into my dog's heart, but he's put it into mine, and he's put it into yours, and that's why you think about those things. That's why you can see injustice in the world and complain about it, rightfully so. In verses 16 and 17, Solomon observes, there's wickedness in the place of righteousness and there's no justice. But so what? Who cares? If all we are is beasts living out our days only to return to dust, who cares? This is why. Because God's absence is painful. and We feel it under the sun. We're meant to feel it. To feel his absence. So that we'll long for his perfect presence. And his perfect justice. And because God is on his throne, because he is in control of his creation, has authority over it, it's only a matter of time. God is always on time. Jesus came right on time, even after the 400 years of silence, right? Silence from God, 400 years. There was an appointed season for him to live and bring healing and teaching and blessing, and there was an appointed time for him to be whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross by sinners who depended on him for their existence. There was a time for that. There was a time for him to be killed and to lie in a grave while everyone was wondering if this was all for nothing if it was all just vanity and meaningless. But on the third day, he rose again right on time. And you remember what he did after that? He hung around another 40 days, right? The risen Christ was present with his disciples, giving them encouragement, leaving them with instructions, and saying before he left, all authority in heaven and on earth had already been given to him. And then he sat on his throne that's where he is today if christ being enthroned means him being in control over his creation and us our response should be faith if christ being enthroned means him having authority over our lives our response should be willing obedience And if Christ being enthroned means God present with us again because of His sacrifice, our response should be to worship Him. Our God is sovereign. Nothing happens that's not according to His divine plan. And His divine plan included the greatest injustice the world has ever known. The only innocent man who ever lived Dying a death he did not deserve to die. Make sense of that. And his death brought life to those who know and love him. Amazing grace. Knowing God is on his throne will not rob you of your freedom or anything else. It's not there to, to limit you. God's not a taker. He's a giver. He gives you peace. Peace this world was not designed to afford you. Peace that can only come from God's presence and He has chosen to be present with you. With all His power and all His might and all of His, all of his control and all of His authority and all His big fancy theological words like sovereignty and, and providence, He has chosen to be To be present with you. That's what I want you to leave here knowing this morning. You know, because a God with no control over authority or authority over what he's made is an absentee father. There's no love there. We don't need or want a careless maker. We need a God who is on his throne, who is above space and who governs time and who doesn't need our permission to rule over us as he sees fit. We want to know we have a God who knows better than we do. And we do. That's the God we have. May that give you peace this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, in the words of Charles Wesley, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Help us, Father, to rest in the fact that you are sovereign and governing all of your creation according to your divine plan that included you, Lord Jesus, taking on flesh to die in our place. Your love is unfathomable. And help us, Holy Spirit, to be content with what we do not know and to be especially satisfied with what we do know, that we have an enthroned God who is with us even to the end of the age. In Jesus' holy name, amen.